because of COVID, everyone's terrified of court. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Refactored Podcast. My name is Chris Tonkinson. And my name is Frank Cole. And this is the show where we try to suck a little less every day. This is episode number 51, recorded December 21st, 2021. The Christmas episode. I don't have any bells. Yeah. I need some bells. Ugh. And, and once again, it's as close as I can get off the top of my head. And once again, we're, our timing is still off by a week. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, right. it's 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 our Christmas episode that will hopefully be available during the Christmas holiday week between Christmas and New Year's. So I had a um, I, I had a, a nice little Christmas gift. The company decided to close its offices completely between Christmas and New Year's this year, which was a, a pleasant mm-hmm. surprise. I haven't had that as a policy at a company since mm-hmm. like my second job out of school. Destination Imagination it was this cute little nonprofit in South Jersey. And um they they closed their offices between Christmas and New Year's and honestly completely ruined me for my professional career ever since. Because every company I go to, one of the first questions in my mind is, I wonder what they do between Christmas and New Year's. Are they open? Yeah. Do they close? I hope they close. <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, this this will be fun because you are a um, you are a Marvel MCU nerd. Have you gone to see the new Spider-Man yet? No, I haven't. What is I, wrong not, with probably, you? Oh my! I don't God. have. <laughs> I have. I have an actual career and three children. That's oh. what's wrong with me. I don't oh. have. The, I, I just <laughs> lately <laughs> with holiday prep. I would say burned me there. Jesus. <laughs> I, yeah, I I don't slack at work. That's uh-huh. really the root. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I we haven't gotten out to see. I, part of it is I don't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go without my wife. Um, Oh, she watches too. She's a, she's a fan. Uh, most of, yeah. Since, since we've been together, we've seen, I would say, mm, I would say the majority we've seen in theaters, um, simple majority. Um, but this one (laughs) looks good. And I, I have heard now from multiple sources, no spoilers that it is no spoilers. Phenomenal. It is. So I, it is outstanding. We also, we were trying to decide because we saw this, that, uh, Gucci movie, yeah, uh, also that looked really good. Um, and I've heard mixed things. I've heard not so great. We were on the fence. Like we mm-hmm. don't go to the movies that much. And so if we're going to go, we're only going to see, we pick one and that's it. And we were like, oh, well, which one should we see? And now the reviews from Spider-Man are so overwhelmingly positive and the other ones are mixed. So mm-hmm. I think we're just, We'll, we'll probably make time next so week. So I'm looking forward to it. So I, I have an easier time getting there because uh, my wife does is not much of a movie goer. And so uh, mm-hmm. and she doesn't really like the superhero movies. So um, it becomes my excuse to get out of the house and have just a night yeah. out quiet. Um, I actually planned to go. I think it was opening. Yeah, I, I went opening night. And I did the late show because I'm a night owl. And so I thought, yeah, I'll go to the late show. It won't be any big deal. I do my usual thing to to show up. Now that has been super duper easy in COVID and it was easy before, but like in COVID it was like, I would have the theater to myself sometimes, which is awesome. If you've never done that, that's quite fun. Um, yeah. So I go to pull up to the theater and there's a line to get in the theater. I'm like, Oh, this doesn't look good. And then I get into the theater parking lot and the parking lot is full 
like pre-COVID full. I have not seen it this busy before. And I went, okay, maybe they're all here for the seven and eight o'clock shows. And then I go to walk in the front door and there's the blinking signs that says that it's sold out for the nine and the nine thirty show that I was looking at. Oh. And, and you know, like an idiot, I didn't think I needed to buy tickets because I haven't had to buy tickets in advance for mm-hmm. movies ever. So I was actually, it was kind of funny. I ended up running some errands and whatnot. And then I went back on Sunday night and I saw it Sunday night and there was probably a dozen of us in the theater. Uh, I'll be honest, given the, given the, given the movie content, no spoilers, given the movie content, I think it would have been fun to have a f- packed theater to see and feel the audience reactions. I think that would have been mm. really, really neat. There were some really nice pointed emotional moments that having the audience reaction would have been really cool. Instead, it was just me yeah. making noises in an echo chamber. Um, someone so. someone whose opinion I, I trust on the matter asserted top five favorite MCU films. Yes. This one. Yes, I would, yeah. I would concur. I would concur. Mm. Um, Oh man, yes, and I can't. Your opinion, any, I do not trust. I, I, I understand, <laughs> and I, and I can't. I will. I will wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. I can't. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to go any further to do comparisons and things like that for fear that it might no, lead no. to spoilers. No. But yes, absolutely, nope. top five. Uh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I found a meme that I actually shared at work. Uh, you may have seen this one. It's the. Um, uh, it's the. It's all sunny. It's always sunny. Meme. Uh, with the uh, with the map and the strings, and um, you know he's he, the, the, yeah Pepe yeah the, the the Pepe one Pepe yeah um and uh so I shared that in my office uh, on Monday after I saw it and explaining to my spouse why we need to see thirty four movies from five franchises before watching the new Spider Man film <laughs> and there's a grain of truth there there's definitely a grain of truth yeah. there are things that I definitely having seen. All the previous material, there were little things that I picked up that were really, really fun. They were really, really mm-hmm. fun. So they did a great job with fan service in the truest sense. And the storyline was fun and it was just kind of bonkersy. And it was, it was great. It was great. Um, yeah. So Spider-Man, I, I looked, I, I remember thinking, boy, this is going to do really well at the box office. This is, this is going to be incredible. And I, the news on Monday, $253 million opening weekend. The largest post-COVID by far. It destroyed everything. Uh, it had, um, I think the, it, it's actually one of the, it's one of the third largest openings of all time. It's behind wow. It's behind That's Avengers impressive. Endgame and Infinity War. That's what it's behind. So, wow. it, it, and it is the largest. I don't, in- I don't care. Like, I don't care enough to look, but I've always wondered what um, population, population size, mm-hmm. uh, number of open theaters and inflation adjusted box office debuts actually look like because yeah. it is no surprise yeah. as we have more people going to more theaters paying more for their ticket at the box office this oh it's the biggest box office ever i i don't know why anybody cares about that as a metric at all you expect that to happen routinely as those three numbers rise mm-hmm. um and so I, i'd be curious uh if anybody's Wait, ever done i'm sure somebody has done the inflation variables. adjustment yeah because you i mean really i want to see how, how does how does an inflation adjusted uh avatar compare to endgame compare to um titanic these were all considered yeah. biggest box openers ever so yeah um yeah 
but well, not just inflation though, but also population and num- and control for number of theaters because those those mm. matter. Well, maybe not number of theaters so much. Well, maybe. T- yeah, but I would like would to see something to beyond just oh, you know, biggest dollar sign ever. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Well, that's not really surprising. Yeah, nor- normalized analytics. What does that actually look like? Um, well, here's yeah. something that's okay. So I, I did find a chart that had the top domestic opening weekends for films after March 2020. So everything since. COVID quarantines mm-hmm. started, which is a pretty tight time frame, and I think could, you know, is a reasonable metric uh, for for equal comparison. So you got Spider-Man way yeah, but it's out. also but it's also going to skew towards the back end. It as w- more and more people feel comfortable going out past yep. March 20. Every so I, I will really- say every film on this list came out in 2021 and the earliest one came out in let's see here, May of this year. So this is all so you're really of, talking about since May. Yeah. This is really like the last six months, let's say. Um, so it's, it's a fairly narrow window and it, it was the, it was the quiet time <laughs> I would say from, uh, from, from the, mm-hmm. from the, all the quarantining and stuff. Um, I know we're hearing lots about Om- Omicron right now, but then again, I I'm, I'm personally not worried. I think that that's a, um, I think that's a nothing burger, but if you want to talk, if, if you want to have some COVID talk, we could do that too. Um, I do not. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so Spider-Man's way out in front, 253. The second is uh, Venom. The new Venom movie had 90. So let's just think about that. 253 versus 90. Um, mm-hmm. And then Black Widow behind that at 80. And Shang-Chi behind that at 75. And Eternals behind that at 71. And then F9, the Fast and Furious movie, is at 70. And it just dips on down from there. Uh, I think the next one is, uh, it was the so new out Bond of, movie. So out, out of all 12 movies released in the last six months, uh-huh. the six that were MCU were the most popular. Mm-hmm. Well, is that, I mean, is that Venom's, essentially what we're saying here? Technically, Venom is not MCU, although kind of it is. It's a, it's that, that, that's, a little, that's a little shifty. Um, and, and, and the Spider-Man movie did not help clear that up either. So, um, so, uh, anyway, I, and, and the thing is with the, there are, there are, there are lies, there are damned lies and there are statistics. That's true. I mean, that's really what it's really what it is. It's really true. Uh, I I can get, you can get a data set to literally say anything you want. If you squint hard enough. Right. And so this is, I mean, take it for what it is. It's domestic gross basically since May. Um, the biggest movies since 2020, March 2020, but like the biggest ones came have been since May. Um, and what I find interesting about this was that, you know, Spider-Man is the most recent and, you know, everyone's ramping up fears about about quarantines again. And that didn't seem to stop anybody. And so then I contrast this with an article that I read the week before the movie came out. OK, that's so an interesting uh, just to stop there for a second. It's an okay. interesting point to make that like amid you know um, uh, amid a new wave this still did exceedingly well i think that says something i i mean there's a couple different conclusions you could try to draw from that um but that's actually drawing conclusions is the thing that i wanted to talk about because i am going to bring this back to something relevant to our to our topic of the uh our, our show our show uh genre um so there is i read an article in the previous week uh, why Steven Spielberg's West Side Story hit the wrong box office notes. So 
If you didn't know, Steven Spielberg remade West Side Story. Uh, and it I did, didn't know. Yeah. Um, it, it had a very, from what I understand, it had a very large marketing push, but I, I don't watch much TV, so I, I can't speak to that personally. But apparently there was a fairly heavy marketing push. Um, I do recall seeing a YouTube ad or two about it. Um, mm-hmm. And it bombed in the in, it, the in the store in the uh in the market so it uh it cost about um it had a 100 million dollar budget it collected 10 million in its domestic debut and ouch it needs to generate at least 300 million globally to break even over the theatrical run and so the likelihood of Yikes. it breaking even is yes pretty much slim <laughs> to none so they're taking a bath on that one right so womp womp sad trombone now there is there is a whole litany of crap around this about why that is and a lot of it dabbles into woke waters which of course quickly gets political and so i'm going to sidestep all of that crap um i'll exercise for the reader to go and check that out and see if any of that is true or not the thing that i wanted to call out here is that uh is is some of the conclusions of some of the media analysts that uh, you're trying to explain and, and, you know, somehow, you know, excuse the, uh, the bad, the bad opening, um, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, one person in this article, they're chasing an audience that doesn't rush out opening weekend. Okay. All right. I mean, maybe, um, you know, uh, there, and then they also, I'm trying to find the other article uh, the other quote here. Uh, somebody, somebody else in the article actually points to COVID and says, you know, well, you know, this is, you know, this is all, you know, this is all COVID related. You know, nobody, nobody goes to movies anymore because, you know, right. because meanwhile, COVID. Spider-Man did 25 times that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so, and yeah. I actually, in the article that I, um, <laughs> that I read, I pulled the quote out and I, forgive me. I have the article open here and I just can't find it right now. I should have, I should have, I don't forgive you. Yeah. I should have, I should start printing and highlighting these things. Um, so Didn't you just make fun of me a couple of weeks ago for I printing did. things out on dead trees. No, no, no. I like dead trees. I was, I mean, I may have been making fun of you I for the trees, sake of man. making fun of you, but you know, it was not, uh, yeah. you know, the, the proximal reason for the fun making was was the dead trees. Yeah, yeah. we all know the, the root issue is just me, my person, life choices, and philosophy. I get that. <laughs> I can appreciate that. <clears throat> That's a two way street. Yeah, for sure. Um, ah, here here it goes. Okay, so it wasn't actually a quote; it was just the article itself. The biggest obstacle facing this is an article on Variety. This article is on Variety. Um, the biggest obstacle facing West Side Story is and will continue to be convincing older audiences to go go to theaters. Along with families, it's the main demographic that hasn't returned in full force since the pandemic, particularly at a time when a new COVID variant has emerged, though it's too Mm -hmm. soon to say how it will affect movie going. So I read this quote and I pulled that first line out and I dropped a comment in there and said, this uh, this prediction, this will not age well when Spider-Man comes out this weekend. (laughs) And yeah, sure you enough, won that one. Obliterated it. And mm-hmm. so I'd like to, it would be interesting though, to see demographic differences between the two 
audiences. I agree. I mean, you could have something there. I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, in, in, in if we were to put together some kind of Venn diagram, there is certainly going to be a piece of this circle that doesn't overlap. And there's obviously the the superhero genre definitely uh, leans younger, and mm-hmm. uh, that and so that's it. I admit that. However. A $253 million box office opening is still going to have a large piece overall of general demographic pie. Like there's a lot of people that that are going to fit well, the, the group thing that is, this article you have to, is saying won't go. Families, but there's older a, there's audiences. There's a variable. Okay, so, so let's assume that West Side Story is going to lean towards an older audience. And let's say the older audience, you know, since lockdowns began last March, right. uh, are still hesitant to return. Okay, that's a valid that's a valid explanation why something didn't do as well as we Possibly, thought. Possible, yep. And you mm-hmm. can look at Spider-Man and you can say, okay, well, there's your counterpoint. And I can say, yeah, but the audience skews younger. And yeah, we could do all of that. The variable that nobody's put in here is time. And what I mean by that is, you have West Side Story coming out and competing with other things that are doing very well because even like even even all of those other issues aside, there are a lot of people like my wife and I. We go to the theaters maybe twice a year, right on average. And so for us, when we go, we're saying, "Oh, we're going to go some pine sometime in the next couple of weeks." What's out? We pick one thing. So you can also because you have something that's as wildly popular as Spider-Man seems to be, mm-hmm. just sucks the air out of the room. And your people that are only going to go once that month, that's where they mm-hmm. go and everything okay. else. So so there is there is actually what what I'm getting at here is that um it's not like uh it's that there is the pie is fixed to some degree. And having something that comes out so wildly popular. Now you said West Side Story came out the week before Spider-Man. West Side Story. So like that yeah, it was. It's very, I would be it was curious. very close. It was. It was. It was very, very close. Yeah. I read this article the week before. This article came out on December thirteenth, and I think this was written. So uh, what's that then? Two weeks. Yeah, I think it was. So it was. It was like two, I would wonder what else came out that weekend or and the few weeks before. Okay, so you 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 could have a point there. We're actually going to have a nice a nice comparison moment here because uh, coming up later. What's today? The 21st. Tomorrow, the new Matrix mm-hmm. movie releases, which is yeah. very much in line with the same audience that a Spider-Man film would have. And they don't even have the 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 uh, the Matrix movie is playing the the Christmas weekend gamble. And so they're going to right. they're going to leverage the the non-Christian audience for for. And so, you know, we'll see how that does. There's there's a whole mess of things going on there. That's not really my point. I mean, one, this is it's, it's kind of funny. To hear, oh, clearly nobody's coming back to the theaters yet because of COVID. Everyone's terrified. Of course, you, you do. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to override the fact that you have to put a lot of excuses all up in a row in order to even sound like there's a defense for something doing so abysmally. Like right. let's let's a, let's let's go back to the starting point where that's a shameful box office number. Right. It's just it's, shameful. It's just a, it's a bad box office number. Like you you I like think it just that, is. Yeah, I think COVID may have not helped you and it, it may have hurt you, but that is obviously not the only thing at play here because yeah. he, movie A did 10 million. Movie B did two hundred did twenty five times more than you in the same time frame. Okay, COVID 
is an, is a reality for both of those things. So something else is at play here, you know? Yeah. So um, it's so, not an order of magnitude d- differentiator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so that I found that I found that kind of kind of funny. Um, and then so I, I went looking for the same information about Spider-Man because you know, my experience at the theater, I went, whoa, okay, this is this is pretty cool. I haven't seen this since before the pandemic. So let's find out how it did. I found another article also on Variety talking about how it it raked in a a whopping 253 million. Um and I read that article. And in that article, we have another consulting firm uh talking head saying, uh, this is an incredible opening and a timely reminder of what the big screen still means to mainstream moviegoers. Most big series struggle to maintain their success this late in their run. Spider-Man is exploding. And now late in their run. Okay, so a couple things I want to unpack there. All right. So he sees th- this guy, uh, David Gross, in this article. He sees, okay, so clearly, you know, the, the, the big screen still means something to mainstream moviegoers. Well, yeah, because the movie was only released in theaters. It didn't go to streaming. So if you think that number wouldn't have gone down if there was a streaming element, I, I think you're 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 fooling yourself. Like this, this guy's making an argument against a straw man. Like it's, you know, oh, it came out in theaters and it came out on streaming and it destroyed in the theaters. Obviously people still love theaters. If that was in fact the case, then yeah, he would have a point, but it wasn't up against streaming. So he's, he's making a fallacious argument here. The other, the other part of this about big series, long running series, this is the third Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland um, being this successful and late in their run, you know, you know, it's it's still exploding. Well, yeah, because it's part of the MCU, which is now what, 20, 30 movies in like we I mean, it's 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 huge. And so, you know, late in the run is not a thing that would necessarily that I would ascribe to. Spider-Man or indeed anything in the MCU, because each of those movies lives in a space beyond themselves. So, again, it, it, what my, my point in both of these Okay, the 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 article, the author of the of the West Side Story. Oh, it's because COVID. And then this guy in this follow up article, David Gross. Oh, theaters are still awesome. People love still love theaters. Both of these people are seeing the results that they want to see from the information that they that they have in hand. They're drawing conclusions on it, but they're conclusions that are not entirely based on purely factual knowledge. And this is something that I see in software development and application development all the time. When you have, you know, you collect your metrics because we can collect a lot of metrics and we can draw conclusions on those. If you're looking at the wrong numbers or you're looking at them in the wrong way or, you know, worst of all, you're going in there looking for a specific result you know, you're going to find what you want to find and you're probably going to miss the most important things in, in between, you know, it are, were both of these observations correct? Yes. But I think that they are applying more weight behind them than they probably should. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're 
saying, oh, it's, you know, West Side Story purely, I mean, clearly the quarantine just has a, a massive impact on it. Well, clearly it didn't. And this other one, oh, well, clearly, you know, moviegoers still love going to theaters. Well, you didn't give them another option. So it's kind of hard to say that that's true. And when we are designing and building things, I think it's really, really important that you, you fight hard to keep yourself agnostic. You need to get yourself out of your own way in the applications that you run. It's hard because we, we build and own these things. There's a part of ourselves inside of them. There's an emotional attachment there. And I think that's perfectly fine and valid. But when, when you give that, when you then turn around and give it out to the world, you got to take the rose colored glasses off. You got to, you got to do your best to eliminate your biases and your own, you know, preconceived notions and listen to what actual users and actual activity is telling you. And that, that can be a hard thing to do. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's an exercise that, uh, you know, is on full display here or a failure to do so, I think is, is on full display here. And it was timely information and I thought I could hook it into our world. So what do you think? Am I, am I crazy? It really just boils down to empathy, right? So if you, if I, if I build a system, yeah, I've got a perspective on it. I've got motives. uh, I've got assumptions. If something goes wrong, I already think I know what it could be. And that skews confirmation bias in terms of how I diagnose it. If I get a user reporting in with an issue, confirmation bias skews that too. And so we've talked at length, I think already about how empathy is the key skill, right? That's not just, it's not just about trying to understand the other, what the other person is saying. It's also getting yourself out of your own head to do that. And there's two sides to that coin of empathy that allows you to really see things from somebody else's perspective and try to put the confirmation bias and all those cognitive faults at bay so that you can conduct honest analysis. Um, honest meaning from the perspective of some outside person, not in terms of like objective truth, because let's, you know, let's not go there. I, I think the more interesting thing is just with respect to metrics, you you, you kind of buried something in there. Um, there's the old mantra, you know, what gets measured gets managed. Um, and and data itself becomes a really critical. So like we, we I mean, every day we build and consume systems and they just generate tons of data, right? Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not a shocking assertion. Um, when I'm putting an application together as a, as an individual contributor or as an architect or a project lead, or if I'm providing, you know, helping to provide oversight on something, another team built, I, I care about what data that application is generating that I'm going to ask some simple things right up front. Okay. Your system is presumably running on some kind of hardware. And so how much memory is it using? How much disk is it using? How much CPU is it using? Those basic kind of IT metrics that we use because when something breaks, somebody's going to immediately go into the underlying hardware and see, are we full of disk? Are we full of, you know, is CPU pegged? Is is memory exhausted, right? Those are basic things. But you also like the application itself. If you've got application performance monitoring tools in play and APM, you can you use that as a diagnostic tool and as a projection tool, right? So you do capacity planning with that data and all sorts of other things. Um, one of the books, and this will actually be my pick for the week. I don't think we've mentioned it before. Um, Jerry Z. Muller 
has a book called The Tyranny of Metrics, uh, where he explores in some length um, some of the issues around uh, metrics, you know, the, the things that you set up, the, the signals your application puts out into the world or, or team, right? It doesn't have to be a technical thing. This is just for business writ large. Um, you've got to be careful because the things that matter that, you know, the, on the Venn diagram, there's stuff that matters and there's stuff that's easy to measure. And the overlap there is less than you would want to believe. And so oftentimes we get obsessed meeting metrics because there are things that can be easily measured we get caught up on that and we never stop to think whether those things actually matter and on the other side there are things that really do matter that are actually really tough to measure and we don't spend enough time thinking that through um and so oh no you know you back to your you know kind of original point developer there's a bug that they don't see it because they're not collecting metrics because the metrics are skewed because they're not actually telling you what you need to know and like I've been on this rampage just myself in the last year or so of observability. That has been a huge part of what I'm like, what I'm trying to do in my nine to five is just get things instrumented so that we have proper visibility. And that doesn't mean putting, you know, open telemetry hooks into C sharp applications. That's like, okay, getting useful metrics out of teams, because do I really care how many points a developer is is solving in a sprint or is it something different than that? Or is that, should that be used to color the story I'm already going to tell? Because what you said was like, uh, you know, there's always subjectivity mm -hmm. in bias. Like, you know this, you've had finance discussions before. You push for something and the finance department says, well, that looks like it costs more than the alternative. What's the, well, you have to tell a story about why it's worth it to spend them. It's not just the data that, you're managing a process, you're managing a team, you're managing an application. There's never a case where there's just objective truth being dealt with. There's always that bias. There's always the story around it. You, and your authors with this, with this, these two movies play that out perfectly, right? They're looking at the same data. They're telling two stories on it. And both of them are probably right to a degree. And, and they're both also of them both are wrong. probably wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, we just, I don't know, we spend so much time in that gray space, and yet we pretend like we're spending time in the fact space, mm -hmm. and that trips uh, that trips us up all the time. Yeah, it's and and it's the it's the biases part that that I was really leaning in on here because we do collect numbers and we start looking at things in a certain way. I think your uh, your your pick is actually quite good. I I like that. Uh, what was the what was the title of it again? The tyranny of metrics by, by Jerry Muller. Super augmented, silent, and deadly. I just might end up enjoying this. So that's a, um, I haven't read that one. I'll have to pick that one up. Um, oh, it's it's great. It's a quick read. Well, <clears throat> I, I, I got about halfway through before I got distracted by a, a different book that hit my desk. But uh, what I've read so far is fantastic. <laughs> he kind of um, lays out the case. And then I think he spends uh, the rest of the book kind of exploring examples and things. So, you know. Right, right. It's a good read, though. I, yeah. I still, I've read enough to recommend it. Yeah. I mean, the the things, the, the key for me, you know, with all the metrics that are available, we go looking for the things that we know to go and look for or the things that we, that, you know, or, you know, we try and confirm our assumptions, which is, which is okay. It's okay to uh, confirm your assumptions as long as you're open to your assumption also being disproven. And I think that 
uh, a lot of times in in app development where where things get fuzzy. I'm not talking about things like uh, you know server performance. Oh, okay. Well, I can see that this CPU is peaking out, so you know we probably should increase its capacity or you know put more units behind the uh, you know <laughs> behind the firewall. You know, add more add more app servers. That's that's not what I mean. That's that's binary kind of junk. What I'm thinking about is how useful is this feature? How often does a customer, you know, follow this path of of actions? And, you know, where do they get stuck and stonewalled? And what can we do to improve things? It's the, you know, the fuzzier human elements that that I am particularly uh, honed in on. And because that's the stuff that's hard and that's the stuff that a lot of people have have inputs and, and opinions about. And engineers can be, you know, very strong-willed about certain things, but, you know, so can product owners. And, you know, you, you've got to be, you've, you've got to be open to the notion that, you know, there's something that you're not seeing. There's something that you're not considering, you know? Like, there, there are a bunch of reasons why Spider-Man beat the ever-loving snot out of West Side Story. Is the <laughs> pandemic part of it? Mm, probably not. I, I think the fact that one did well and one didn't in the exact same time frame mm, kind of, I think, n- nils out the the relative impact because if it if one did super successful, one well, didn't. But that's, well, but that's bias. A, that's fallacious and biased even in itself, what you just said. Right. What because did I do? You, you, there's, I there's a fallacy of false, a fallacy of false alternatives. It is not correct to say just because Spider-Man is a good movie that was anticipated and nobody gave a rip about West Side Story does not mean there can't also be pandemic impact on those sales. Right. So it's not correct to say that those are mutually exclusive rationales. They, OK, so I think what you mean is, no, the pandemic is not the predominant reason it did so abysmally. Po- like we, we almost need a West Side Story sucks tag for this one because <laughs> 10 million opening is just pathetic. I, so I have nothing bad. against West Side Story. I didn't know they were redoing it. If I had, I wouldn't have had an opinion like I don't have a dog in this hunt, but 10 million opening weekend is just I mean, embarrassing is not a strong enough word. I like that's cringe. I feel bad (laughs) for the studio that it did that poorly. Right. I I can't emphasize this enough. I I did mention how it was Steven Spielberg, right? Steven Spielberg is the one who created it. It's his name. It's just the whole thing. It's like it's cringe by proxy. I can't even handle this. It's too much for me. But but like just saying just saying that, okay, it was a bad movie and nobody cared. Yeah, that maybe you could say that's ninety nine percent of the reason doesn't mean the pandemic couldn't have been one percent. No, no, it's correct to say it wasn't an issue. Okay, so I I, that's. But I'm just pointing that I'm not trying to call you out because I know what you're I know the point you were trying to make. My point, though, is. Even when we're talking about this stuff and even when both of us are highly conscious of how we're thinking about these things, we right. still make these kinds of errors. Like you you can't escape that's, it. It's that's like a psychoanalyzing point. yourself. A point. Psychoanalyzing yourself is like is like uh uh standing in between two mirrors. It's just it's infinite recursion. It it, it never <laughs> you never get out of the loop. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, it's uh <sighs> You, you, yeah, you and you and I were definitely on the same page, it, it, and you you caught me on poor wording. My my intent was not the wording, but but what you said was was accurate to what I had said. So, um, like we 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 we've covered it. It, it just 
the 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 uh, the uh, the blame game the the assignment of of uh reasons for success and failure uh were just humorous to me and and reminded me of the conversations that I've had about uh direction for where to take applications and how to build things and and et cetera et cetera um and yep. so uh yeah and spider-man was a really really good movie and you should totally go see it <laughs> that's I, I'm it. looking forward to it. I'm looking yeah. to, do you want to do a dual pick? It sounds like it sounds like that's a pick. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm I guess it. we haven't done a pick yet for a movie, but yeah, you know what? It really was that good. I was I was so impressed with it that I you're actually, talking it up. I actually I pushed it to I don't normally follow up with social groups on this kind of stuff. I, I, I tend to stay out of the social mm-hmm. medias. Um, it's probably because I know how the sausage is made. In this particular case, though, I told a small group of friends that, you know, we have a chat group. I, I posted something there and then I posted something into the, the company's uh, global chat mm-hmm. about. And, and so, yes, I would definitely say go go and get yourself some Spider-Man No Way Home. It'll be worth your time, I promise. Super augmented, silent and deadly. I just might end up enjoying this. So there picks, you go. Picks aren't always, picks are often off topic, you know. I mean, if like if I heard you ranting that much about a, I don't know, some cocoa shea body butter, like it's just the the amount of time and <laughs> and 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 aggression of your approval is enough to call it a pick. That's all that matters, you know. Yeah, true. Yeah, although I I don't have that, I, I have no cocoa shea butter, whatever. I it's I don't know, some <laughs> kind of smelly lotion. That's all. I, whatever, man. <laughs> Uh, you had something that you, uh, the small talking point that we can pop in here. Did I, have we talked about, uh, have we talked going into software architecture? Have we talked about diagramming yet? Mm, don't know if we No, have. I don't think so. Why don't you start by defining your terms when you say diagramming? Yeah. Software, software architecture diagram. So, so tools and stand, particularly standards, but also tools to communicate logical layouts and relationships of, of software systems, technology so, systems. So things like, things like, like database, visual database, table maps, that sort of thing? No, not in ERD, although, although ERD could be a subset of this. Okay. Um, but, but tr- so, so I have a software system, right? And it's a, it's a SaaS product and, um, it interfaces with a few third-party APIs, has a couple of different user personas that are of note. Um, and within that software system, um, there are microservices. Let's say there's you know four different backend services. There's like a um, single page application, you know, SPA front end, you know, whether it's React or Angular or Vue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a database, like an all online, an OLTP database and also a, a um like a reporting database. Let's say there's some other internal API. It uses Exchange. It uses a file share. You know, software architecture diagramming is is you know explaining what those components are and mm-hmm. how they relate to one another and 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 how they interact with one another broadly. Like that, 
Is this something that. that's hand built or is this something that actually looks at the code and, you know, connects the dots between where it's loaded and variables? No, and no, calls? you, you got to draw this out. Okay. So like if I like little Jimmy comes on the team, right? Okay. Little Jimmy comes in and we try to explain to him the the logical and physical layout of this system. Right. What do you do? We, you know, like whiteboard. Right mm -hmm. is a, is a common thing, or somebody somebody may have like a Visio or a PowerPoint with some boxes and arrows to say, oh yeah, the you know the load balancer is here, and and there's four of these API servers, and you know they they can all talk to this other system, but that can't talk to here, and these send data there, and you know you're trying to explain onboard somebody, mm -hmm. um, and and give them like the context of the of how this thing is deployed and what it looks like, and um. We came across, and this is going back some time now, but I, I don't think we talked about it any length on the show. Uh, we came across something called the C4 model. Okay. I don't know if we've discussed this before. No, it's I don't think we have. C4model.com. Um, everybody, if, you're, if you are uh, an individual contributor, QA manager, senior developer, software architect, uh, VP of engineering, uh, you either need to go at on the homepage, c4model.com. On the homepage, um, there's a link to, there's an embedded YouTube video. It's like a 30 or 35 minute talk the guy gave at a con. Um, lays out exactly what the problem is and what C4 model is and how it solves the problem. Broadly speaking, the problem is nobody knows how to draw, nobody knows how to create software diagrams well because um, there, there are some standards, but they suck. Um, and this kind of actually ties back into the original point that you made with the, with the, the metrics thing, um, or, you know, telling, telling the story from, from the, the limited data available. Um, so he goes on to say that he gives a bunch of examples. He's like, here are some different software architecture diagrams and, you know, they all suck and they're all totally different and they all suck in their own unique ways. And it's funny and the audience gets a laugh and then. He goes on to explain, like, here's why they stink, right? Because they don't capture what matters. They don't lay it out consistently. And there's not a common vocabulary for speaking about the different layers of abstraction. And so the C4 model is that it's a prescription for here's how to create software architecture diagrams that A, makes sense, B, are consistent, C, and this is the big thing that I think is, is almost like a buried lead, are easy to create and maintain um, because if they're easy to create and maintain, then they have a prayer of actually being created mm -hmm. and maintained over time, right? Yep. How many diagrams have you looked at and somebody says, oh yeah, here's the latest diagram. It's from 28 months ago. Yeah. And oh, this is no longer here. And that's since changed. It's like, well, half the, like what, what value is this thing? Yeah. You know, what's the point of this thing? Um, and so basically it takes it takes kind of a a simplified it's almost I've actually had people push back on it that it's too simplified um until no they such really thing. understand how it no works such uh, thing. exactly <laughs> exactly high level like just a, just a level set for cuz again it's a it's like a 30 minute video I I'd, I'd encourage everybody to go watch it um as soon as my team I I didn't find it somebody on my team found this um as soon as as soon as I saw it I said okay great and we have like 12 different software systems, depending on how you draw the lines and differentiate at my company. Um, as soon as I saw this, I said, great, we officially have a new project that just started, which is doing this for all 12 platforms. Because, 
us it because we need this. And since then, we put it up. We we did like a Hugo site where we publish the diagrams and mm-hmm. you know on the back of a CI pipeline. So when we make changes, it automatically gets pushed out. Um, and then we sent we just share links whenever anybody asks us questions about things. We send them a link to that internal site and we say, "You here's the answer. You go look at it." The number of people that have come out like as an aside or after a meeting or in a private chat while we're talking about something and saying, hey, by the way, we use this site all the time. We love these diagrams mm-hmm. is insane. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're so simple means they actually get maintained. And so they're reasonably up to date at all times. We are in love with the C4 model. Uh, basically, it's um, starts out at like like level one, which is the highest level overview. This is your business context. Literally, you start out with a diagram where your software system, the whole thing is just one square in the middle. And then you have lines in or out to your major personas and third-party systems that it integrates with, describing at a coarse grain what they're doing or what is being done to your system uh, and how, and that's it. One of the rules of the C4 diagram to, to, give you an example of like why the the oversimplification criticism comes in c4 strict c4 model uh prescribes when you connect to items i'll say generically connect to things with an arrow a it's always an arrow it's never a line it's got to be directional and then the label on that arrow has to be relative to that direction and b there's no two-way arrows as a general rule what you're describing when you put two boxes on and have an arrow with a description, what you're describing is the the preeminent, the most important, like the notable thing that happens between these two. So user and a and a web and a and a and a web service, for example. You could reasonably say that's a bi-directional arrow, right? The user makes requests of the web service and the web service sends back data. The beauty of the C4 diagram, though, is it lets you, it gives you the flexibility, it gives you the mandate to tell the story that's relevant. So you're nobody's pretending that when you implement C4, you're going to explain every facet of every part of the system in every level of detail. It's, a, it's not feasible. You start that project, anybody that's done this, and I've been on the other end of that request before, it never ends well. It's, it's garbage. What you're doing is saying, no, the user is... You know, they're they're adding records to the database. That's it. Yeah, of course, they send API requests. Of course, there's 12 million different kinds of requests. Of course, the server sends back data. Nobody cares. The story I want to tell is that the users are accessing that web interface to upload their data. That's it, right? And then you you kind of pinch to Zoom. So like level two goes down and you're no longer at the business context, but you take that square in the middle, that software system, pinch to Zoom it, now you see the actual, um, well, it's, it's, they're called, level two is called the containers. It doesn't mean Docker containers, but uh, containers of, of functionality. Yeah, logic um, um, effects. Now you, yeah, now you pinch to zoom that, that software system box in the middle and you see all of the different components inside of it. So these may be microservices or databases or file servers or, you know, whatever, um, and there's a level three. You could pinch to pinch to zoom on any of those and see what's inside of them. You just go as deep as you need to. Um, so what it the advantage that this has over like UML is that it's it's not too heavy handed. UML is terrible. I hate mm-hmm. it. I hate it's, it with a it's passion. Really, it's it's really clunky. It's, it's too complicated. 
It's very it's too complicated, complicated f- for any, and yeah, it has a standard for everything and it can be very specific. And I'm sure there are industries like EEs and stuff that, that live and breathe and it's the best tool for that job. And that's great. Software is not that way. It's, it's too much. And so C4, it's just, it's very simple. It's, it's again, some people have criticized it as too simple. And I, I disagree that that's possible. Um, but you can drill in where you need to, to infinite depth, um, I'm not going to go on longer about it because, you know, the video's there. It's only half an hour, and, and uh, the guy's name is Simon. He does a much better job at explaining it than I could. And we joke around the office like, oh, no, Simon says you don't do that. <laughs> in, in a level three diagram, Simon says you don't do this, you know. Um, and even for our enterprise, we have a reasonably complex regulated environment with a, a lot of different interfaces and 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 contracts. Um, we very rarely even go to level three. But what we have is like manageable, it's maintainable. Uh, we've we've developed a little bit of a customization. We do see for, we had a couple of our own minor conventions over top, but we are we are hyper, um, would I say, uh, vigilant, hyper uh, concerned, hyper focused with not doing too much differently. Like right. it's, it's base C4 and we, we explicitly keep the number of asterisks to an absolute minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to suit our needs without diverging so far from the standard that we wind up committing one of the sins that the whole thing exists in the first place to absolve us. Of. So um, <laughs> what are your asterisks? Um, so there are a couple of, a, a couple of simple things we found over the course of using it. But first of all, C4 diagram, uh, you're allowed to use some color in your diagrams. One of the mistakes people make is using way too many different kinds of colors and and it also, for somebody, and a lot of more people than you expect, are colorblind. So, like, that becomes its own problem. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we do is uh, we have currently four, I think three in production, different um, types of diagrams. So, we have software architecture diagrams as per the C4 model, and those are all blue, let's say. Um, we also have uh, infrastructure and deployment diagrams. So, it's in the C4 style but it's about the actual like containers and servers and networks and data centers. And we use, we happen to use green for those. So C4 says pick a color and the dark version is an emphasized thing. And you can have a lighter version for something that's not as important, but also noteworthy. And that's it. There's your, there's your color palette is like a dark and a light. And we also, we also do have entity relationship diagrams. We use purple for those. Um, So we have, a couple of different types of diagrams, and so we'll label them accordingly, and and the, that's that's technically a departure. Um, we also that's the that's the big one is really the naming and and colors um, mm-hmm. because I think C four like it's specifically software architecture, and even on the site I think he he mentions like oh you can use it for other things like infrastructure or databases or whatever um, you can use the same general pattern we've just put some rules around that pattern. Like I know if I look at a diagram, I see green, I know I'm thinking servers and processes and data centers and network boundaries. Whereas if I see blue, I know I'm thinking, um, you know, services and and logical databases and things like that. Right, but you're going to want to, to their their point, you're going to want to keep the number of those colors limited because otherwise you end up with this giant colorful hodgepodge and it ends up being meaningless because there's too much of it on the screen. 
so so any one actual diagram is just one of those things. Mm. We don't mix green and blue and and purple and teal. They're, yeah, they're, but if you go it's, high it's enough, a, if you're at the if you're at the I, I'm I'm looking at the site now, and I think somebody actually showed this to me before, so I am f- loosely familiar. If you're at like the context level or the container mm-hmm. level, I imagine you're actually going to have a couple different colors, no. right? No, no. So where is there, now? So what no I what page, I care there's about? There's no level where where the, where you have more than one color on the page. Correct. Oh, okay. Correct. All right. Yep. I'm misunderstanding um, so implementation like, then. Like a right. So like a level one context diagram for our software architecture, we call those A diagrams. Um, like an A one would be a blue square in the middle that is my software system, and that's it. Uh, whereas an infrastructure and deployment diagram, an I one, the context for that would have a green square in the middle that's my data center, let's say. So it's it's what you're looking it's it's a different a different way to look at at, at the same systems. Um, and you're not even going to have a one to one correlation at every level between like an A2 and an I2. These A's, I's, E's, the blue green, that's that's our own internal thing that we added on top. Um, you're not going to have one to one mapping of like an architecture level two and an infrastructure level two. You're not going to see, oh, this component on this blue diagram is the same as the one on the green one. Like that's not guaranteed because we care about different things as we're documenting those different types of, of systems. Um, that's the big thing. That's the big thing that we've done. We've said we have, we have architecture, like I said, software architecture, um, infra and deployment, um, entity relationship, and we also have data flow. And each of those different diagrams, uh, they have a different pre- letter prefix, and we use a different color just for some visual distinction. Gotcha. Um, okay. Within those, like we, fo- oh, the other thing we do, um, anytime we have a first party component, like like a system that we we built and maintain the code for, we put a little a Git icon in the corner of the box to denote to distinguish at a glance between stuff that we built and stuff that's like off the shelf software. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my microservice would have a little Git icon, but like Redis wouldn't because that's off the shelf. So it it adds, you know, some additional layer. But beyond that, like not much. I, I We may put a little extra in the, in the metadata. One of the things C4 is big on, nothing is in there that's not labeled. Um, so every single diagram, no matter what kind it is at what level, it will have a key and it will also have metadata it's associated with it. We always keep those up to date um, so that everybody's always super clear about what they're looking at at all times because that's one of the other mistakes people make with diagrams in the software world is they don't label things. So what does, what does this line mean? What does that, you know, what is that squiggle? Like mm-hmm. um, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy trap to fall into. And that's why C4 is nice because it says, hey, there's a bunch of stuff you don't have to worry about. And so that the stuff you do is like really normal, um, normal meaning normalized consistent right, normal right exactly consistent thank you mm-hmm. um and so that's just that's really it's it's been so awesome like if you if if you're again anywhere in the software world and and you have diagrams go watch this video and then do what do what simon says because he's smarter than you i'd be smarter than me <laughs> smarter than anybody else on our team uh and we have we have really made some some great progress with this uh just high recommendation for C4 solves nice. a lot of actual problems. Yeah. And I mean, are you, are you using, you said you're using a Hugo sites. You're just using like HTML entities. You're just 
statically constructing just HTML web pages or is there a framework that you well, use like a YAML file yeah. that defines the things? Like, how are you doing? I would, me and me and my, uh, my, my head architect, we, we would really love that to be the case and actually have the diagrams built from something that's like source controllable. Um, at the moment, at the moment we use draw draw IO, draw.io, um, mm -hmm. Uh, free open source kind of diagramming software. Yep. Um, it's got a it's got a C4 model template that you can download for it that oh, makes it easy adoption. Um, so we maintain all of our diagrams actually in Drawio, um, and then our build pipeline. Like we we have a script that look that extracts the rendered PNGs from each document, each tab of each document, and puts them um, into the into location on Hugo. And then updates Hugo short codes with a link for each one that's been generated. Mm. Um, so it's CI/CD magic. It's it's a it's a script and some magic that gets that to work with Hugo. Um, but the the rest of the site is built with Hugo, like the links for them and you know all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, I will have to check this out now because you're the first person I've met who's actually implemented this. Somebody else sent it to me as a hey, this is kind of interesting. So I'm gonna have to uh, Seven, I'm gonna have eight, to actually look into it. Is your these are 15. these are not public? Your your site isn't public right now, right? Oh you no, no, yeah, no, I didn't think so. No, okay. yes, it's, no. We have a we have a big section. Stuff. Yeah, we have a we have a big section of our site. I actually looked. We have we have 15 different you know quote projects unquote, um, and each one's got its own page on the site and its own set of diagrams and. Um, it's it's just been a real boon. So if you if you like I said if you're struggling with software diagrams or even as a consultant especially you've got to kind of convey the the course structure of things and sometimes go into detail. C four lets you say like no nope, that like and the point with the like I said the the dark and the light color kind of differentiator. You don't want to go crazy with colors because of you know accessibility issues and and also just confusion. Um, but like okay, how do you decide between what's a dark and what's a light color? The answer, Simon says, is what story are you trying to tell? Like when you're putting this diagram together, who's the audience? What do they care about? And what do you need to draw their focus to? And so it literally, like it explicitly has creative control as a high level non-functional requirement for the model. Mm -hmm. Like it, it mm -hmm. bakes that in, makes it really explicit. And then what you get on the back end though is the freedom to do what makes sense in a given context. Um, and when you go from one level to the next one down, there's no requirement that everything in the level above is represented. You can say, look, I just need to zoom in. Like we've never done a, a, a level four for anything because oh, you're I actually getting into like- That's UML stuff at level, I see here. <clears throat> no, at, at level four, you're actually getting into like, this is the name of this class interface method. Right. And here, yeah. like you're getting really, and it Which almost, it's almost just, never worth it. Yeah. Well, it's, it changes. <laughs> Those things are so volatile that, that you know, it, they, yeah. Um, and well, that's one of the reasons we would really love to move to, I think mermaid JS is something we've, we've played with. We've tinkered with mermaid um, because you can kind of create like ASCIFIed graphs of things and, and have the layout and rendering done automatically. Um, if it were that easy to do, then it's really not a big burden to update the stuff because again, because it's so simple and easy, it's really easy to keep up to date. And that's where the value comes from. Um, and so the reason you never get to that level is because you don't need it. 
Like you mm-hmm. just you just don't need to yeah. represent that stuff. Yeah. Um, but if you did, again, you can focus in on the stuff that matters. So I have this huge, big enterprise class system. I need to level four. Uh, I need to level four on the art on the software architecture side for like, I don't know, like the the service that encrypts documents right because we you know auditors are going to ask okay well there's five methods and three contracts so we can do that reasonably and we have to because of either we're extra concerned about it or or like if you were in a financial uh financial company there there may be some settlement or clearing things that you'd mm-hmm. want to go that deep on um yeah you, you know, would want us, the, you would know. want that level of scrutiny for certain, but but like highly like I'm not going things. to get a level four for like a user updating their avatar, right? Like right, nobody yeah. cares, right? Nobody's gonna, nobody um, cares, and yeah. so yeah. E- yeah, and even most regular business processes, you're not going to care. It's the things that have sensitivity, security mm-hmm. concerns, you know, major blast radius on them if if things potentially yeah. go awry. You yeah. know, that's that's yeah. where high you would risk, use that. yeah, and those high things, complexity and high risk, and by def because of that, by definition, changing them is a longer more onerous process, which means that the documentation that you write, taking the time to actually draw all that crap out, mm-hmm. it has some, it has a high likelihood of longevity. You're not going to have to go in and change that a zillion times. Right, Even if you exactly. change the code, that chart is probably not going to change all that much versus other yeah. parts of the code, you know, depending on how you've got things set up, you know, the method to update your user's avatar I mean, you could change that three times in a month, <laughs> you know, because it's, you know, becomes more abstracted and now it handles the avatar and their email and their profile pics. And, yeah. you know, it's it's just the volatility, I think, is is the bigger issue as you go yeah. deeper. So. And we've actually like we've used this. We've we've sometimes we've had to take a diagram and um, refactor it slightly uh, or redact something sensitive so that we could use it in an RFP or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to do. It's super uh, one of the easy, things yeah. we've incorporated. You asked about our own standards. One of the other things I thought of, um, we universally uh, like a, a light yellow. We use that at, in in the legend is defined as a proposed element. So let's say mm. we're having an internal discussion, nice. planning what next year's build of this will look like. Now that we introduce this new system, okay, what are the new proposed additions to this thing? How do we call those out? Right, that's. And it's a very minor thing. It's very subtle. We don't use it a lot. It's not in, it doesn't live in the diagram for long because either we ratify it and then we document that that's what we built or we decide not to do it. So um, that's not something that tends to be, it, it tends to be transient when we do use that one. But just as another example of like very minor things we've layered on top and with those minor, just us specific additions, again, we're documenting 15 different systems to everybody's satisfaction and we can manage it with a very small team because it's easy to do like mm-hmm. proof in the pudding. This is a really good, um, it's a really good standard. Cool. All right. We need to wrap this up. You've been talking way too long. I know. I know. I, I, I couldn't shut up there for chatty for Kathy today. Yeah, tell me about it. It's crazy. Well, I, thanks for sharing the C4 model. That's really cool. I, uh, hopefully that, others will find that useful so we'll have links to it and uh and uh, additional show notes and all that stuff at refactor.work uh you can send us your feedback we'd love to hear your comments if you've done implementations etc you can send that to feedback at refactor.work we'd love to hear from you 
Uh, Chris writes over for himself over at chris.tonkinson.com. You can find my stuff at hotcoals.com. And let's see, this has been the Refactored Podcast, episode 51 on December 21st, 2021. Actually, I just realized that the the, the date is 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 there is twelve twenty one twenty one. I was is there some numerology crap there? There probably is. There's probably some. There crazy might be. Numerology. Yeah, I'd have to sit there and analyze it, but I don't have time in the uh, in the rollout bumper here. Next four seconds. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good conversation as always, Chris. I'll catch you later. Thanks, Frank. Happy holidays. Cheers. See ya. Same to you. <laughs>